series on 1 John. Um, today we're talking about matters of the heart. We're following a line of argument that John has been making all along. You remember he, he, he started off and, and he, he hit them with this whole big idea that God is light at his core, at the very essence of his being. God is light and in him there is no darkness. And so the people who walk in light, walk with him, they're in the light and the light exposes the struggles that they're having, the sins, those types of things. So, so the, the, the interesting thing is, as you walk in the light, you become more and more aware of your shortcomings. And then John brings up this whole idea that there's forgiveness in that situation. God offers forgiveness to us if we confess our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So if you are, if you are going along and have no sense of, of uh, over, over days, over weeks, no sense of the struggles or the problems or the sins that you're dealing with, there's a good chance you're not walking in the light because light exposes those things. And it is a continuous thing and it is a never-ending thing. So he, he tells them that. He, he, he works through difficulties that are in the church. He makes sure they understand you're Christians, but you're struggling with these things. These are important things. These are things that will lead you toward destruction. These are things that will lead you towards death. These are not the ways... He wants us to go. Then he starts with uh, chapter 3, and he says, Behold, this great love the Father has for us. He says, Look at that great love the Father has for us. And then he says, then he talks about in verse 2 that we have this destiny, that we have this, this meaning in life, this purpose for being that God has established that is right here, right now, and off into eternity. So he says, You've got, you, you, God loves you so much. You have an identity, you have a destiny. And then on the basis of that, he says, now this is how you live. That's when the sin, the purging and the, and the cleansing of sin happens, when you focus on these things. So that I don't, I don't have to focus on straightening up my act. I focus on God. And God starts working on me. And so then it starts happening he says, this is how it works. It's not a matter of, uh, we, we can get it in, in the wrong, we, we come at it from the wrong angle too many times. So he's working through that. He's, he, and I can't spend all this time talking about all this. So just real quick, he's talking to Christians. He's dealing with sin. He's talking about how to live out the Christian faith. And then in verse 18, it's on your sheet there. He says, dear children, let's not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. We talked about that a little bit last week, but I, I just want to set the table with that so we understand the context here, he's talking about loving in action and in truth. Sometimes we can, em we can em emphasize the truth and do it in an unloving way. And sometimes we can minimize sin in an effort to be loving. He's saying it's not either of those. He wants us to understand something. Truth without love is abuse. And love without truth is neglect. He's saying you have to have both. That's why he says in other places, we hear this, speak the truth in love. And you know, we've all met those people, sometimes probably you have, you, you met someone who's big on speaking the truth and they just go around wrecking people and smashing people and, 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 and just destroying people's lives. And they say, well, it's only the truth. I'm just telling the truth. You know, and they say terrible things about people under the guise of being truthful. Okay, I want you to understand something. As Christians, that is out of bounds for us. That is not something we should be. We speak the truth in love. If we speak the truth, then what happens is we let that person know, at, and they should see it in us as we're speaking the truth. It's coming from love. It has to be that way. 
truth that is spoken in an unloving way is not how God wants his truth to be dispersed. He does not want truth going out that way. That's not God's version of truth. All right, and so to emphasize that, you know, we think about certain verses of James chapter 2, verse 24. He says, if you see a brother or sister in need, you know, and, you, and, and in James 2, 24, he's saying, and you say, oh, be warmed and filled. I can remember before I knew Jesus Christ, you know, I, I, was, a, I, was, I was a real literary person. I read the comics almost every day in the newspaper, and, uh, and I love peanuts, and here's one of them. Snoopy looks kind of cold, doesn't he? I'll say he does. Maybe we'd better go over and comfort him. Be of good cheer, Snoopy. Yes, be of good cheer. And then they walk away. Um, the writer of the, he's a Christian, and so he just kept putting Christian themes. If you read enough of the Peanuts, you will find Christian themes and Christian theology shot through those comics. Why? Because there's James 2.24. There's 1 Peter 3. If one of you sees a brother or sister in need and you close your heart to them, you shut the doors of your heart to their need, you feel no pity. He's saying, what are you doing? You can't do that. And so we have this, this whole idea. So I want you to see, first of all, oh, I was thinking about this with the Snoopy thing. Sometimes people don't need a sermon. They just need a sandwich. You think about that. They need words of love supported by actions based in love and on truth. Because God did that for us. God demonstrates, Romans 5 8, God demonstrates his love for us that while we were yet sinners, Christ dies for us. He demonstrates. That is a word that's to, me, to, me, to make plain, to be made visible. We have a visible reminder of the love of God, and his name is Jesus. And so, earlier in chapter 3, he says, if you see someone in need and you close your heart to them, you, you are not, you're killing them. You're not giving life to them. Because we're supposed to be giving up. He tells us we're supposed to be giving up our life or giving up the goods of life, giving up the things that give life. That could be food. That could be clothing. That could be shelter. That could be attention, care, things that give life to other people, words that give life to other people. And it costs life to give life. If you're looking for a way of ministering and serving people that doesn't cost you anything, let me know when you find it. I'm all in on that one. That'll be great. Doesn't cost you any time, doesn't cost you any money. You don't lose out on anything. That's awesome. Because I don't know about you, but sometimes I'm, I'm, I want to serve people. I want to help people. And sometimes doing things, I'm, I, I, can, I can easily get myself into, work myself into a situation where I go, man, you know, if I help too many people, I can't go on vacation. This is going to cost too much. Giving life costs. It costs. We have to understand that. So now, he's going to tell us, he's saying, uh, uh, John is saying, okay. He says, dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and the truth. He says, okay, this is how this looks. This is how this can happen. First of all, I want you to see this idea of assurance. This is verses 19 and 20. This is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our, and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. So he says, he brings in this phrase, I love this phrase, our hearts at rest in his presence. 
That's assurance. That's, that's saying, I belong here. I am one of his children. I am adopted into this family. Our heart can condemn us. This is the point here. Why do I need my heart at rest? Because my heart can condemn me. I can struggle with guilt and shame. Now, guilt is not always wrong. We have to think about what it's telling us. The Holy Spirit uses guilt, the Bible tells us, He uses guilt to reveal unconfessed sin. All right? But our sinful nature and Satan, they use guilt to get you to wallow in shame and to get you to move further away from God. The Holy Spirit reveals guilt in our life, uses guilt in our life to reveal unconfessed sin so that we confess it and move closer to God. Our sin nature works in the opposite direction. Satan works in the opposite direction. It uses guilt. You say you're a Christian. Look at what you just did. How could you be a Christian? You probably didn't mean it. It's probably not true. What is it? He uses guilt to move you away from God. And so when you feel guilty, you have to stop and think, what's going on here? It actually takes a little work. And you have to think about what the guilt is telling you. This is why... We say, you know, the scripture teaches in so many places that he's cleansed us from our sin and our shame. Because sin and shame are so intertwined. I think about it in Luke chapter 10. I'm not going to go there, but Luke chapter 10, we have the story of Mary and Martha, and Jesus is there teaching. And Mary, it says, is sitting at the feet of Jesus, which is a pretty impressive thing when you think about it. Because you're in this society where women are second-class citizens. You're in this society where women are not allowed to, to, to do many things. They're segregated in the synagogue, all these types of things. And suddenly, there's this phrase, sitting at the feet of Jesus, which is a common phrase in those days, for a disciple of a rabbi. If I'm a disciple of this rabbi, I sit at his feet. That's the phrase for that. That means I'm associated with him. He's my rabbi. I'm his disciple. Well, this is interesting. There's never been a rabbi that had a woman as his disciple. And Jesus does it. She's his disciple. So that's kind of the, that's what's going on. We got Mary and Martha, and Jesus is there, and he's teaching. Mary is sitting at his feet, and Martha is doing, getting things ready, okay? And so we see Martha try to send Mary on a guilt trip. You know, you can control people by using guilt. You can make them feel so bad about something that they end up doing what you want them to do. Husbands and wives can do this great. Parents are experts at this with their children, I speak because I was a child, and I am a parent. I've experienced both ends of that. After all your mother went through, birthing you, and you're so ungrateful. And you go in that room, you tell your mother you're sorry. And they go, I'm sorry. They go out. You know, they're sorry on the outside, but not on the inside, right? Okay, so you can use guilt. And so Martha says, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself? Tell her to help me. You know, Martha aims pretty high right here, right? Because she's throwing Jesus on a guilt trip. That's what she's trying to do here. Lord, don't you even care about me? I'm slaving. Right? She's trying to make Jesus feel guilty. And Mary is right there. So she's double, dip, double dipping on the guilt train, right? She's getting two for one. I'm going to put them both on a guilt trip. That's what she's doing. Now, 
I just, I look at that, you know, and I start thinking, okay, I wonder how that played out. I wonder what's going on. I think, I wonder what Mary's thinking. Because I can imagine Mary starting to feel guilty. Maybe I should be helping her in the kitchen and not studying at the feet of Jesus. Poor Martha. She's mad at me now. She's mad at Jesus. I'm hindering her relationship with Jesus Christ. You know, you can imagine that going. And so Martha is stirring feelings of guilt by condemning Jesus and Mary right in front of each other. You don't care about me. Now, you think about the audacity of that. And I want to tell you something. I'm not hammering Martha here because I can be the same way. And the disciples can't hammer Martha because they said the same thing to Jesus in the boat. They said, Lord, don't you care that we're going to die? And I mean, you ever think about if you were Jesus, I'd be like, you know what? No. I really don't, because you are just such a dweeb. You know, I, I just, I would have been, that's why, you know, praise the Lord, I'm not Jesus. Praise the Lord, I'm not, because nobody would have made it. And I'd have been like, I'm sick of you. Psh. Anybody else want to be, everybody like, I don't want to be his disciple. <laughs> he just electrocutes them all, right? That's what, and so, so this, is, this is what's happening here. You don't care about me, Jesus. You don't care about me. And I'm telling you, that works. It works. Parents, you, you can use that on your kids a lot. You just don't care about me. And they're just like, oh, I'm sorry. You know, you, just, you can just pull them along. Because why does it work? Because it puts the other person on the back foot immediately. They're, they're, on, they're on the defensive immediately. You, you may not believe this, but I actually am a black belt in karate. And that is the truth. Okay, I was a black belt a long time ago. <laughs> not really anymore, but you know, once you have it, you have it, right? And so we would spar. We would spar, and 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 so I'm sparring with one of our instructors, and that was a dumb thing to do. I don't know how I got roped into it, and uh, and he was talking about how important it is to put the other person on the back foot because once their weight's on the back foot, they have much less. You you want to be on the front foot so that if you kick somebody or you hit somebody, you're coming, your body's in it. If you're on the back foot and you're trying to kick or punch, you got way less power. So put him on the back foot. And so he, he, uh, he was saying, let me show you how that works, right? And so he turns to me. The whole class is watching, and I'm just like, all right, I just got, you know. And he goes, hey, Bob, listen. And so I look, and he goes, bam, like that. He steps forward, he punches me right in the chest, and all of a sudden, I'm flying backwards, and I fall down. He goes, see, that's even better than being on the back foot. If you put them on their butt, they really are on the defensive. And so this is what she's done, right? She's put Mary on the back foot. She's trying to put Jesus on the defensive. That's what she's trying to do. So when it comes to guilt trips, Martha's a black belt here, right? And so Mary is probably feeling a little bit like, man, I'm not so sure. So now where's she at? Her heart can condemn her. And so she, she, she can worry about this. And we are assured here that God is greater than the condemnation. He knows everything there is to know about us. He knows whether any particular situation we're in, any guilt we're feeling, any shame, he knows whether it's legitimate or not. He knows whether there's a real problem to be dealt with or not. And he reassures our heart. I know you. I know you, and I love you. This doesn't change anything. That's a powerful thing. And so what does Jesus say? He says, Martha, Martha. Now, I don't know exactly if he said, 
Martha, Martha, or if he said, Martha, Martha, or I don't know exactly. I just know this, whenever someone says your name twice, that's a sign of something, right? Remember when you were a little kid and your parents would call for you at the door if you're outside playing? And you knew just when the time was that, okay, it's time, you know? Because I'd hear my mom, Bobby, come on in. Okay, mom. And I'd just keep playing. Bobby, got your mom. I'll be there. Just a second. I'll be there. Then all of a sudden I hear, Robert. I'm like, I'm coming. <laughs> I go, because I know once we go to the formal name, what happens after that is not a good thing. So I knew that was the time. So Jesus is getting real here, right? Mary's probably thinking, I probably should help her. I won't hear the end of this if I don't. And Jesus reassures her heart. He overrules the guilt. He overrules the shame. He basically says to Martha, I'm not playing this game. I, sometimes, <laughs> sometimes things pop in my, I don't know, I, just maybe it's because I grew up in a weird home, and things pop in my head, little sayings, and I thought of, I thought of that. Uh, 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 I say things sometimes, and my kids and my wife will go, where did that come from? And I'm like, I, I don't know. I don't know, but I can just imagine, you, I don't want to be sacrilegious here, but I can just imagine, because this is something I've heard over the years, you can jive the baker and he'll give you a bun. You can't jive me because I got none. I don't know where that came from, but I've heard it, and it, it's, it's in there rattling around. And, what, and Jesus is saying that. He says, I'm not playing that game, Martha. That's not, I'm not going there. He says, Martha, Martha, you're worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed. And then he says, indeed, only one. He says, there's only one important thing here right now. And he says, Mary has chosen which is better, and it will not be taken away from her. You will not do this to her. You will not take this blessing from her by putting this guilt upon her. I say, no, he understands what's going on. He overrules the guilt. He assures Mary, you're doing the right thing. This is that assurance. You're doing the right thing. That's what God does for us. So there's no guilt. Mary is doing the one thing that's right. He's saying, Martha, you've chosen 12 things, and none of them are important. You've chosen a bunch of things. None of them are important. You remember in the Indiana Jones movie, the first movie, where they go, and there's that old knight waiting there? Remember him? There's all these goblets, and one of them is the true chalice of Jesus Christ, the true cup of Jesus Christ, and, and you know, some smart, eloquent guy thinks he knows everything, goes in, he finds, oh, this is the most beautiful of all the goblets. It's fit for a king, you know, and he drinks it. Remember that? Okay, years ago, special effects weren't like they are today. And so the special effect that comes up when that guy drinks from the wrong chalice is pretty cheesy, but basically he just, you know, smokes away until he's just ashes on the floor. But in those days, that was pretty crazy. I can remember sitting in the theater going, whoa, man, that dude is a pile of ash. That's incredible, right? And then you remember what the knight says? He chose poorly. And I'm like, you think? 
A little understated there. You know, well, the guy's, you know, 800 years old, 1,000 years old, maybe understatement's his thing. But it, it's, it's he's, Jesus is saying to Martha, Martha, you've chosen poorly. You've made a choice, and you've missed it. Mary has chosen correctly. And Jesus overrules the guilt because he knows the heart. And this is the promise that we have in this scripture. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. So in verse 19, this is how we know we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. So he says, this is what's available to you. He dissolves Mary's guilt. He reassures her. And this is what he does for us. Peter denied the Lord three times. Then we have that great passage where Jesus hunts. He goes looking for Peter, and he finds him. And he does in reverse what Peter did to him. Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know I love Peter, do you love me? Three times. Why? Because Jesus is saying, we're undoing that, Peter. You don't live under that guilt. It's taken care of. I took care of it, and I'm going to do it. Right in front of you, we're going to undo. We're going to flip it over. We're going to change it over. And he brought peace to Peter. James 2.13 says, mercy triumphs over judgment. And God says he brings mercy into our lives. So God brings us rest. He welcomes us into his presence. This is the thing I think about. He welcomes us into his presence, and we belong there. You belong there. You were made for this. This is a great thing for us. This is incredible. He knows us completely, and he still loves us. He still wants us. He knows you completely. Excuse me. He knows your innermost thoughts. He knows your secrets. He knows the things you struggle with, the things that can keep you up sometimes. He knows the things that make you happy. He knows your joys and your sorrows. He knows it all, and he still loves you. You're his treasure. And this is radical assurance. You go before God, and he says, yes, this is where you belong. This is where you belong. All right? Next thing, we see assurance, and we see confidence. Now, John here, he's addressing how when we are right before God, it changes how we approach him. So we don't have, just have assurance. We have confidence that this is where we belong. And there's a difference. One year, we bought one of our kids a dog, and it was a dog that had been rescued and uh, had, had, had been uh, abused and abandoned. And when we first got this dog, um, the dog just kind of it, it, was, it was weird, not tiptoed, but it kind of just gingerly went around the house. You know, we'd lay out food and it would kind of eat. And you could just tell that dog was thinking, uh, this is not where I belong. And, you know, things have been traumatic. And so the dog's nervous, you know. And so we just, you know, just kept loving that dog. And, and after a while, that dog, it, it, it wasn't just assured. We tried to assure this dog, you're here. The dog got confidence, right? Then it started jumping up on the couch and wanting to sleep in the bed with us. And I'm like, oh, crap, you know, this is too much assurance. <clears throat> we got we to gotta unassure this dog about certain things. But what happened? It went from assurance to confidence because the dog suddenly said, okay, this, this is home. This is where I belong. Sweet. 
you know? So the dog's getting up in my chair, and I'm going, I'm going to sit here, and the dog's looking at me like, whatever. And so, you know, there's this power thing that has to go on, and then my daughter and my wife are going, don't you do anything that, don't hurt, don't even raise your hand at that dog, because the dog will think you're going to hit it. You know, I'm like, I'm not going to hit the dog, I'm just going to pick the dog up gently and toss it, you know, <laughs> somewhere. No, I wouldn't do that, honestly, I wouldn't do that. But I wanted the dog, no, that's my chair. Don't, you know, I don't want you to have that much confidence, right? Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask because we keep his commands and do what pleases him, right? So he's just told them, he's just told them, you can rest in God's presence now. God is greater than your heart, so he relieves us of that condemnation. So now he's saying, okay, so if God does that, my dear friends, my loved ones, so if we get that and our hearts aren't condemning us, then now we have this confidence. We have been assured of this, so now we have confidence. We don't think twice about it. And then he says we have confidence before God. Um, that word before is the word face-to-face. What a beautiful picture that is. I've talked about that before, but I'm, this stuff makes me cry. You know, when I think about it, with my children sometimes trying to make sure when they were small that I get on one knee. I get on the knee right now, but I'm not sure I can get back up. Well, I can. I get on one knee with them. When they come to tell me something, I say, what is it, buddy? What is it? Tell me. And they, they get right in my face. And, they go, uh, you know, and you know how little kids, when they get so excited, they are talking faster than they can breathe? So they go, well, I was outside, and I saw this thing. I couldn't breathe. Uh, and, 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 and they get so excited, and I get face-to-face -face with them. Why? Because I don't want to be up here looking down here and have them having to look up. You know, I wanted to be face-to-face -face with them. And there were some times where I did things that I knew hurt my children, and I had to ask their forgiveness. Oh. I had to ask their forgiveness. And I always made a rule. I'm going to get on a knee. I'm going to get in that kid's face. That kid will not have to look up at me while I'm asking his or her forgiveness. We're going to be face to face. God says we're face to face. When I come, and this is, he's talking about prayer now. When I come to God in prayer, and God is in his in heaven, this celestial throne, and there's all the cherubims and seraphims, all the M's are there, you know, they're all singing, they're all doing all this stuff, they're worshiping, it's just this incredible scene, you know, if you can imagine that, and I start praying, and God's like, oh, hold it, sorry, everybody, you know, Peter, shut up, I can just imagine that happens a lot, um, and God says, what is it, Bob? And I'm like, God, you won't believe what happened. I'm so, he called me a name. I feel so bad. And he cut me off in traffic. I don't know. I just, I'm, I'm sorry. I got to and, and it's sometimes, and it can be, I mean, you know, if you're a parent, you remember when your kids were little and they, sometimes they brought the most idiotic stuff to you where you're just like, really? <laughs> this is dumb. But you don't say that, right? Because you love them. And so you're interested in even the idiotic stuff. And that's how God is with you. He's face to face. And he goes, tell me, tell me, tell me. I want to know. I am interested in what you have to say. And so we approach God without any doubt. Without any doubt that he wants what is best for me. 
and he will respond accordingly. We have this confidence. That word means an openness, a lack of fear. I will not receive anything negative from him. I will not receive a rebuke. You know, that t- no, just a total lack of fear. That lack of fear comes from the total trust in someone else who you are sure cares for you. Right? So this passage is dealing with prayer. So we need to spend just a few minutes on this idea. In verse 19, he talks about going into his presence. Verse 20, he's saying God knows everything. As we go to him in prayer, we're assured of that. In verse 21, we have confidence face-to-face with God. In verse 22, he's talking about asking and receiving. And so verse 22 especially can seem kind of strange at first. We receive from him anything we ask because we keep his commands and do what pleases him. So let's talk about that for a second because I think this is important for us. We have to think for a moment, what is prayer? Because a lot of people think prayer is like some kind of exchange of information, you know, especially in tough times, right? You send up a prayer in time of trouble. It's like shooting a flare off. You know, I need help over here. And we think that's what, that's, that's what prayer is. That's a very small part. Because real prayer, essentially, at its very essence, prayer is this. Prayer is coming into the presence of God. It is seeking him personally. And unfortunately, for a lot of people, they think it's like sending a text, right? You, you, or, or, or filling out an application. You know, you, sometimes you see these applications. We want to know a little bit about you. And, and, and then you fill that out so they know better about who you are. But, you know, when you send a text... It doesn't require, you can send a text and watch TV at the same time, right? It doesn't require your total attention. It's not personal interaction when you send a text, when you fill out a form. When you do that, you're just sending information. And this is what's key about it. You're still in control. You're not exposed for more than just what the information is about. And you can regulate the amount of exposure that you're willing to give. You can regulate what you're willing to reveal when you send a text. Because it's all in those, those, whatever, 146 characters or however many, you know, that's all that's in there. And you regulate that. You control that. You're not exposed. But when you meet somebody face to face, right? I mean, you can text in your PJs sitting in front of the TV, you know, not that I would do this, but, you know, eating candy and drinking large amounts of soda. But when you go to visit, some, when you go to personal, when you go to a job interview or you go to, a per, go to somebody personally, okay, now you got to be dressed right. Now you have to, because why? Because they're going to see you. And now if you really are interested in that person, you can't watch TV at the same time while you're meeting with that person. You ever... You ever been with somebody that you're talking to them and you suddenly realize they keep looking past you at something? You know that feeling? You don't really care what I have to say. There's obviously something over my right shoulder that is much more important to you than me because you keep looking over and going, oh, yeah, yeah, oh, go ahead. No. You know, you just know. They're not... They're not just, so when you get face-to-face with somebody, you can't hide that kind of stuff. You've got to be engaged. It's personal. It's real. They see you. Well, this is what's happening. Real prayer is a personal audience 
face to face with God. And so you got to give your full attention because he's going to give you his full attention. To come into the presence of God means he permeates your life. It says he knows everything. So you can't hide when you come into the presence of God. Now you start thinking about that, how that affects my prayer. I'm going to come, I'm going to pray about something, but I can't hide from God if I've got ulterior motives to that. And someone may say, I've heard someone say this, what good is it to pray, to trust God, if he doesn't give me what I want? As if God's your genie. What that shows is he hasn't permeated your life. If God could give you what you want all the time, that'd be the worst thing he could do for you. What parent gives their kid everything they want? That's not love. Because what happens is you get this spoiled, rotten brat when you do that when you give them, when you don't withhold, when they don't learn the power of no, when they don't exercise that, you know, the negative sense of I can't have that, you get this spoiled, rotten brat. And that wouldn't be so bad if you had a spoiled, rotten brat in your own family. But the problem is that kid's going to grow up and you're going to unleash that kid upon society, upon the rest of the world. And that person lives. They become a narcissist, basically. They think it's all about me. And I'm what's most important. And so as a little kid, you gave them stuff they'd throw away. What do, toys mean nothing to me. I get them all. I get whatever I want one. When they grow up, they do that with people. They use up people and throw them away. When they're a little kid and they're spoiled, right, they can just throw a fit anytime they want. And you, oh, 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 you know. They grow up. It's the same thing. If somebody says something extremely negative, they react they blow their top. They call names. A little kid has no idea what things cost. If you give a little kid stuff all the time and they don't learn that, they grow up and feel entitled to everything. They're not self-aware. They can't see the impact of their actions. And, we, and what happens is people grow up to be that way. Now you may be thinking, Bob, are you talking about somebody we all know? Yes, I am. And it's time to take a stand The worst thing God could do for us is to give us whatever we want. That's the worst thing he could do for us. And before we get on our high horses, let's just remember this. We wrestle with this too. I wrestle with this too. Say you're doing your taxes and you've got two competing truths in your mind. I'm doing my taxes and I've got two truths in my mind. Number one is I know God loves me and wants what's best for me. Number two is I want more money. I'm doing my taxes. I want more money. Now, I have done my taxes long enough, and I'm pretty familiar with tax law. And so I know sometimes you can massage numbers a little bit, and you can fudge a little here, and you can fudge a little there, and suddenly you're getting more money. So now i got two competing truths going on in my life. Which one takes precedence? Which is most real to me? I would like more money, 
but I know God says he'll take care of me and he wants me to be a person of integrity. Now, which is going to take precedence? You know, that happens to us all the time as we make choices in our lives. Most of the time, we kind of know what God wants us to do. And then we weigh it against what we want. Now, which one wins? And this is what he's addressing here. Which one wins? In, in Psalm 16, 8, he says, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. I shall not be shaken. What does that mean? That word shaken means to stagger, to be off balance. And what is he saying? He says, God says he'll never leave me or forsake me, but there are people who want to do harm to me. Now, which of these two am I going to live in light of? He says, I'm going to live in light of this. I will not be shaken. No matter what happens, it doesn't mean bad things won't happen to me. Bad, what looks bad to me anyways. It doesn't mean that won't happen to me. It just means when that does happen to me, I'm not going to lose my way. I'm not going to go off the path. I will not go the wrong way in difficult times. When we go into the presence of God, we are laid bare before him. And prayer is way more than sending information. It is a personal audience with the king of the universe. It is going before him and I saying, I want you to fill my vision. I want you to fill up the space in front of me. I want to see things the way you see things. Real prayer is more than just requests. It is giving God your full attention and getting his full attention. It's kind of ridiculous to go into the presence of God and say, God, I just got one thing I got to ask you and then I'll be done, thanks. And God's like, no, no, this is more than that. It's laying your whole life before him. It can't be rushed. Now, giving information, giving requests to God is a part of prayer. But our problem is, for most of it, it is the main part of our prayers. And God says, I don't want that to be the main part of the prayer. I want to give you my full attention, and I want you to give me your full attention. So that as you pray, and you think about what you're asking me, you're evaluating how that would look, and what, what, would that fit with my will? Would that grow my kingdom? Is there a possibility that I have a better way than the way you're asking? But God is saying, but I guarantee you I'm going to answer this prayer. It's not always how you think it be answered, but I'm going to answer it. Because then what happens is we begin to let him permeate us, our desires, and his desires begin to fit together. And when you begin to realize that you want his will more than any specific answer, because his will is better than anything you could think up yourself. And so he says, I want you to keep asking and keep receiving. Those words in the Greek are continuous words. Habitually asking, and you will keep on receiving. God does answer according to what's best for us, according to his will. Third thing I want you to see, we have assurance. Now we have this confidence, and now flowing out of that is obedience. Verse 23, and this is his command to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. The one who keeps God's commands lives in him, and he in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gave us. All right, so he says we keep commands. We do what pleases him in verse, in verse 22. He's already talked about that some. So how does that work? Well, here it is, verse 23 and 24 in a nutshell. The idea is this believing. It's a, very, it's a very interesting word. It's this idea of something that happened at a point in time, but it continues now and affects me forever for the rest of my life. So he's like saying, you believe, now keep on believing. Keep on believing in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. 
and keep on loving one another as he commanded us. And John is simply restating what Jesus has already said. Love the Lord your God. Love your neighbor as yourself. And here he's emphasizing that love starts in the family of believers. He tweaks it a bit, but it's the same thing. So last week we looked at this process where we hear a need or we see a need and God nudges me. Bob, maybe you should get involved in that need. He pushes me. He speaks to me. You can help here. There's lots of needs. There's lots of stuff going on in this church. There's lots of needs all around. We can't do them all. So then what happens is God begins to work in one area. He says, Bob, this is one you can work on. You can do this. You can give some time here. You can help here. You can serve here. And then what happens? It becomes part of this plan that God has. I help, I serve, I give, whatever it is. And it answers somebody's prayer. And it becomes part of this beautiful tapestry that God is weaving of answered prayers of people serving one another. The Holy Spirit calling us to do something that then becomes an answer to someone else's prayer. And in verse 24, he says, the one who keeps God's commands lives in him. That's the word abide. We see that throughout Scripture. We've seen it a number of times already in 1 John. This is the idea of where you dwell, where you find meaning and rest. It's where you're supposed to be. The one who is believing, the one who is loving, this is where they live, with God, abiding. When we obey God in our life, then we're abiding. We're where we're supposed to be. This is the best place for us. This is home. Some of you didn't have a great home. So this concept of abiding, this concept of a home, this concept of of parents who are loving is a difficult concept for you to work through and to grapple with. And God says, I understand that. I'm the loving father. There's a number of times where we say, he he uses that phrase, our loving father, a loving heavenly father, because he wants to emphasize that to you, that if someone has screwed that up in your life, it can still be redeemed. This is key throughout Scripture. I was thinking the other day in Luke 10 where the disciples have gone out and they come back and they're like, Jesus, man, you won't even believe it. Even the demons submit to us in your name. And you remember what Jesus does? It's like they are so excited and he just rains on their parade. He says, says, look, you know what? That's great, but this is what you should be rejoicing in. Your name is written in the book of life. That's what you, that's a, that, that, yeah, de- okay, that's a cool thing. That's a boom, that's awesome. But this, this lasts for eternity. You know, this is where you, this is home. This is where you will abide forever. Back in Jeremiah, he says, your name is engraved on the palm of my hand. Isn't that a cool thought? Every time God opens his hand, he sees Bob. Maybe it's Robert. I'm not sure. Not sure how the spelling works out in the Hebrew. But every time he opens his palm, he sees my name. He sees your name. That's pretty cool. He says, I I got your name tattooed on my palm. So we rejoice because our name is written in the book of life. We have here this idea that we, we have this, this God 
who is involved intimately in our lives. And at the very last part of verse 24, he says, this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gave us. How do we know this? Through the spirit. The spirit who works in us. The spirit who reveals things to us. The spirit who convicts us. This is his job. He reveals, he empowers, he convicts. Sometimes in your life it might be an experience. Sometimes it's a conviction where you suddenly realize, oh, this is wrong. I should not be doing this. And, it, and it's a change. Sometimes it's an illumination. Maybe you hear something. Maybe it's in a sermon like this and you go, I need that. That's for me. Maybe you're reading, you're reading your Bible on your own and you come across something, a phrase, a sentence, a, a, a verse, a paragraph, whatever it is, and you go, that's so true. I need that. What is that? That's the Holy Spirit working in your life. Because you know what? I've been to a lot of concerts. And I go to concerts and, and, and I listen to, to, to groups that I like. And it's fun. It's enjoyable. The music is beautiful. I like that. But sometimes here on a Sunday morning and we're singing and God breaks me. He just hit, it just God, it comes over me. That's the spirit. Why? Because it's good music. It's beautiful music. But suddenly you have words that have meaning and power that change your life. I've never gone, you know, I like Mumford and Sons. I've never gone to a Mumford and Sons concert where I walked away going, I have got to love my wife better. It's just not happening that way. I love the concert. I love the music. That's not what I walk out. I walk out of here sometimes with the music we sing going, I need to love my wife better. That is my responsibility as her husband before the Lord. I am not doing it as good as I can. I need to be better. I need to love my kids better. I need to serve my church better. I need to do this. I come away. Why? Because the Spirit is in this. He's in this. He convicts us. It might be an experience. It might be a conviction. It might be an illumination. It might be tears at times. It might be tears of sorrow over something. It might be tears of joy. We all want to see God work. We all want God to show himself and reveal himself to us. But the key comes down to this. If he does, are we willing to do what he tells us to do? Because I find myself sometimes praying God, I just want to see you. Just, I just want a glimpse of your glory. You know, like Moses. I just want to see you. And God is like, Bob, when you see me, you will be convicted of something. You will be, something will have to take place. Now, are you willing to do what I may call you to do if I show myself to you? And I'll be honest with you, sometimes I'm like, I... Wow, God, that's pretty tight, see? And then sometimes I say, God, I'll just do it. I'll just do it. Whatever it is, I want to see you. And his spirit is in the business of doing those things in our lives. And so he's saying, I want you to look for me, but you have to obey me if I reveal myself. You have to do. Otherwise, I'm not showing myself to someone who's not interested in doing. So when we go to him, you know, how sometimes we, we think like when we pray that God's up there, you know. Uh, I had a person tell me one time, Bob, please pray for me. I don't think my prayers will get through the ceiling. Will you pray? 
like my prayers are like supercharged or, you know, like the, some sort of rocket thing that gets through further than anybody else. It's not. I said, it's not because we're not praying up there. We're praying this way. I said, your prayers get through because God's face to face with you. He can hear you. And so in 1 John, he's telling us, this is how you live. This is how God empowers you to live. And this is how much God loves you. He gives you this assurance that you're welcome. He gives you this confidence to enter in. And then obedience flows from that. I love the story. Um, reading, I like history stuff, you know. So I'm reading about Abraham Lincoln and his little son Todd. And, and, and it, evidently it's a true story. One time there, he, he was in the middle of the Civil War and all this stuff is going on and having a cabinet meeting and all this stuff. And, and the door opens up a crack and, and little Todd's head peeks in. And he says, Daddy? And, and Seward, the Secretary of War, says, take, take him. This is important. And Abraham Lincoln said, this is my son. He says, come here, Todd, come here. He came, what is it, buddy? <laughs> okay, fine, we'll do that. We'll do that tomorrow, okay? And he goes running out happy. And Abraham Lincoln's like, nothing's more important to me than my child. I don't care what's going on. That's how God is with you. That's how God is with you. He's running the universe. And you cry out to him, and he gets down on his knee, and he gets face to face to you, and he says, what is it? I want to know what it is.